Hello, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Human Restoration Project's fantastic patrons. All of our work, which includes free resources, materials, and this podcast, is available for free due to our Patreon supporters, three of whom are Matt Walker, Jenny Lucas, and Dan Kearney. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. You can learn more about the Human Restoration Project on our website, humanrestorationproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 22 of Things Fall Apart, our podcast of the Human Restoration Project. My name is Chris McNutt, and I'm a high school digital media instructor from Ohio. Today, we are joined by two fantastic educators. First, I will be talking with Peter Verdin, who is a movement engineer at Future Public School in Garden City, Idaho, which is a tuition-free, progressively-minded lottery-based school. Essentially, Peter is redoing the way that we look at physical education with elementary school students, and he's designing a curriculum that these students can grow into and older as the system expands. Essentially, Peter is redoing the way that we look at physical education, specifically right now with elementary school students, and he's designing a curriculum that will help them as they grow older. Then we have Bruce Mansfield, who's an instructional coach in the Bellingham School District in Bellingham, Washington. Bruce has operated a gradeless system in a traditional environment as a U.S. history teacher, and he showcases the structure of his course, how he used portfolios to grade, how he used portfolios to track evidence, as well as student letters to document everything that his students were doing. It's a great look at how we can spread and mirror progressive education with a traditional educational environment. To start off, here's Peter Verdin. My journey to being a physical education teacher is interesting. I have a non-traditional route into teaching. So my undergrad is in sports management. And then, um, and that was at the University of Georgia where I played baseball, uh, was drafted professionally by the Washington Nationals, but really fell out of love with baseball and was like, I really, what I love is being in the weight room and I enjoy working out and um, enjoy pursuing physical growth and kind of the challenges with that. So I went back, got my master's in um, sports performance at the University of Georgia. And out of that master's program was looking for jobs in the sports performance world is this really, um, I mean, it's packed with people willing to work for less and work more hours. And so it's really hard to find a job even with experience as an athlete and in a weight room. So I found this job at a school in San Antonio, Texas, that was intriguing because they were hiring both physical educators as well as sports performance coaches. It was a K-12 school and they were looking to partner those two disciplines to further physical education. I was like, that's awesome. That sounds cool. So I got on board, moved down there with my then girlfriend, my now wife, and we got engaged while we were there. And um, after moving there, the principal's like, we need a lead. You want to lead? I'd never taught. I'm straight out of my master's and I'm leading a staff of seven other physical educators or sports performance coaches, some PE teachers who have like 20 years experience. So really trying to shift the mindset of what physical education can be as a new teacher with some people that have some experience um, was really interesting. Fast forward a little bit. I had a, a stint in a private sports performance facility and then went on board to an educational service provider here in, in Boise, Idaho where I am now, where I was developing physical education curriculum, um, developed a curriculum that was about 750 lessons vertically aligned, um, progressed from kindergarten to eighth grade, along with a learning management system that went with that. And then I would train physical educators all over the country on that curriculum uh, for a variety of reasons, left that organization to where I am now, which is what I'm most excited to talk about, and that is at Future Public School, which is in Garden City, Idaho, um, which is adjacent to Boise. And Future is currently a kindergarten through fourth grade school because we're only a second year school. It's a charter, public charter school. And our mission is to develop engineers of the community and of the future. Um, And I'd say one of the biggest things that um, I think is really cool about Future is our 
uh, value of equity and diversity in a state that in a city that's like 90% white, um, that really doesn't value diversity and equity. That's something that our school does a really good job of um, thinking about. And really that's the student body that we wanna serve um, both you know, socially, racially, uh, economically diverse student population. So um, it's a pretty cool school in that respect. So yeah, my title at Future is a movement engineer. Um, which is, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm sure, dive into what that means and what that looks like here. That's awesome. It's, it, it sounds like you basically went through zero-based thinking. Now, I don't mean this in a, in a mean way, uh, but like if you don't know what you're doing, you kind of start from square one, and as a result, you develop some really cool things because you can think very creatively about it. You're not constrained by what everyone assumes that program should look like. And with that kind of being said, when you first started making these lessons, and you didn't really have anything to go off of because you didn't necessarily have an educational background. Were you looking back to phys ed when you were in high school and middle school? And was that like a positive or negative experience? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I was actually talking about that with somebody uh, yesterday or uh, to, on Friday about my experience in elementary school. And like, I very, really vividly remember my physical education teacher who was from Texas and had this like really country accent. And when we were in like health specifically sex ed, some of the things he said, we would just be like giggling under our breath. But um, that for some reason is the main experience that sticks with me from physical education. I, I wouldn't say I had a bad experience, but I didn't have this like amazing experience either. Um, so I, I did look back to that, but I think um, I, I agree what you were saying about that um, starting from scratch. Adam Grant talks a lot about that in his book Originals about when you even when you think you have a good idea, scrap it and start over and see what comes of it. And that's really what I did coming into this new role. I had an opportunity to take the curriculum that I had created with me as part of a contract that I was going to continue working with that organization. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm going to just start over and see what happens. And it's been really cool. Um, just kind of reimagining what it what it can be. I was almost expecting you to say that it was a bad experience because <laughs> I don't know anyone that had a good experience with physical education at school, but I, I could be wrong, but maybe it's because you were athletic when you were in high school. Um, I know me and my friends, we were not um, pretty much the opposite. So I grew up super nerdy, a little overweight, especially in high school. And I remember phys ed being the only place ever in school that I was ever bullied. And the only place where I felt like physical embarrassment or just embarrassment in general was commonplace. So like everything from the outfit to just like the type of activities, because they tend to be very competitive activities, where if you're not physically inclined is a place that you're going to struggle. It was just a really bad experience for me. And most people I know just because of the way it's set up. And I think that kind of builds into then what it means to be a movement engineer, because I think that your focus is less so on playing dodgeball every day. I don't know what, what it might be and more focused on the health and wellness side of things. I've used the words like reimagination, redefining physical education, like a physical education renaissance of sorts, because I think there are times and there are places where physical education has been quality. Um, but if you look back at the history of physical education, it does have a sports focus back to the 1820s when physical education was getting started it was because of sport um, and the NCAA's creation of, of sport, whenever that was, I forget, uh, 1800s, early 1900s, that really drove the physical education programs in um, higher ed. But what I, you know, coming into future, I really wanted to think about engagement specifically because where I was at before the curriculum had a heavy sports performance um, influence, which was good in a lot of ways, looking at a real systematic way of teaching skills, these movement skills within physical education. But there was still um, a heavy sport emphasis in a lot of ways, especially in later grades. And this curriculum that I had created, it had all of the perfect progressions of teaching these skills, but it often, because it was a scripted curriculum, it didn't have the individual in mind when I was writing it because I was writing it to be implemented at a variety of different schools. And so I really wanted to take 
those concepts of teaching skill, which I think are missing currently in physical education and figure out a way to do it in a really engaging way and a way that met the needs, especially the interests of students um, that I was going to be working with here at Future. And so I think in a lot of ways I've accomplished that, but I think there's, there's still room for growth. Sure. Talk to me a little bit about what it is that you do. Like, so like what would be a typical day for the movement engineers classroom? Yeah. So I think, you know, some people probably from the outside looking in would, would look at it and be like, oh yeah, that's PE. Um, but if you were to like pull back the layers of what I do, there's a lot more depth to it. Um, I think, but yeah, you know, I mean, I teach kindergarten through fourth grade, so I get everybody twice a week kindergarten. I actually get three times a week because their classes are a little shorter. So I get half the class on Mondays and when, or half the school on Mondays and Wednesdays, half the school on Tuesdays and Thursdays for anywhere between 30 to 50 minutes. Um, and I think what differentiates myself from traditional PE is the content and, and how I organize it, kind of my alignment towards a more long-term goal. Um, I was actually drawing, I know if you, uh, listeners can't see this, but I was drawing like all of the influences on the content. It was just like a really messy map and it's been influenced by everything from gymnastics, which if you look back at the history of physical education, that's what the root of it is, is in gymnastics, especially from this like European influence. Um, but then things like risky play are probably, I mean, if you were to come in, you would see like tomorrow we're going, we have these woods that are adjacent to the school, a green belt, because there's the river, the Boise River right here. And we go out into the woods and it's this semi-structured because like I'm kind of driving where we are and what we're doing while we're there. But it's a lot of less structured play that's happening. Um, risky play like you'll come out and you'll see like our focus these next couple of days because I don't have anything in the gym to hang or climb on is hanging and climbing so like kids are going to be climbing trees um, doing stuff like that so real and risky play has really played an influence in it natural movement so like MoveNat is an organization that's really popularized that but just natural movement in the sense of like these fundamental human movements that we do and um and that's everything from wrestling and rough and tumble play, which is part of risky play to like balancing and hanging and climbing. Like I just mentioned some parkour influences. Um, there is still some of that youth sport in there because that is what some kids like um, and enjoy jujitsu, Brazilian jujitsu. I did karate growing up and that was awesome. I have good experiences there, but really I'm not an expert in it, but see a lot of benefits in some of the rough and tumble play games that are within jujitsu, um, long-term athletic development and all the social emotional learning stuff that can be embedded within this pursuit of, uh, physical literacy. Um, all of that comes into the content going back to your question. Sorry, I'm on a little bit of a bird walk, but, um, yeah. And so you walk in and, it, it can be a range of any of those things happening, or we could not even be in the gym. We'd be outside climbing trees. What's the um, parent and student reception to that? Like, are they worried because that, I, I mean, at least like the common American, like journalist perspective would have you think that parents are freaking out that kids are doing anything that might be risky. Is it accepted? Are people going along with it? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I'd say I can count on one hand on like two, three fingers, the parents that are not okay with it. And specifically just because of the river, um, worried about water safety, Idaho's top five for drownings in the uh, country. So, um, but mo most parents love it. They, um, I have parents who frequently send me pictures, text me pictures of their kids climbing trees out by the river where we go. Um, you know, I, we just had a share the love event and we did some stuff in the gym. Parents are coming up to me and like thanking me for taking the kids out there and how important it is for them to be outside. And, um, the kids are showing them some of the wrestling games that we do and, um, within our movement class. So yeah, the, the parent reception, but that's also something that I've been really intentional about is informing parents about what we're doing and, in, and why we're doing it and why it's important. And, 
um, engaging them. Then let's kind of shift over to students that maybe might struggle more in physical education um, with the obesity epidemic, but also just maybe are not prone to physical activity in some way, shape or form. How do you then work with those students? And do you find that then just taking them outside or doing kind of like these alternative things like jujitsu help them learn in different ways? Yeah, totally. I mean, the outside, especially like the majority of students, not more than the majority, like almost all students really thrive out there. Everyday kids are coming up to me being like, are we going outside into the woods today? Like it's this natural environment where um, I think there's just like some innate human um, desire to be in the woods and, and doing stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's still some of the struggle, especially when we do some traditional sports stuff that interests some students, but not others. Um, but I think really it's about creating a culture and creating an inclusive culture where people aren't shamed or meant made to feel uncomfortable because they're not good at something. And that's something that I've been really intentional about is building those relationships with students. And I'd say is one of my strengths is building really uh, meaningful relationships with students so that they know that they're accepted, they're loved when they come into the gym. Um, there isn't, it's not about how good you are now and, and whether you can do something or not. It's really just about um, finding a joy for movement and this pursuit of uh, skill and getting better at it and learning and that everybody is respected and accepted within our movement class. Um, but that to be said, there is, you'll come in at any point in time and there are still students who aren't 100% engaged for a variety of reasons. And a lot of times it has nothing to do with movement. It has to do with, you know, we have some challenging home lives or they didn't eat, you know, dinner or breakfast, like stuff like that. So I still am up against some of the same challenges of a traditional PE teacher, but um, I think just creating a culture of acceptance and is in building that relationship as the foundation is kind of what I see as most important as a teacher, better yet, just a physical educator. Of course. Yeah. That, I mean, that the lack of food is obviously a, a huge hurdle to overcome and it's something that requires resources really beyond what the school can offer in most cases, but something that I would imagine you might cover, they might be a little bit too young, but I guess it could affect K4 would be like food choice, like nutrition. Do you get into like the health side of things beyond just moving around? So like how they choose to feed themselves or how they think about food? That's a, that's a great question. And I would say, I mean, this is my first year at the school, second year as a school. That's not something that we've gotten into yet. I also have the role of wellness director as part of the federal uh, school lunch program. Um, and so we're thinking about what does that look like year two? Um, so yeah, within a primary ed setting, usually you don't have health. It's embedded within the classroom setting, um, science or, or whatnot. So yeah, I'm thinking about what, what does that look like? How do we do that? Um, and how do we do that? Well, I think one thing that does really impact, especially with our student population is the social emotional side of things. And so when you do get into some sort of competitive thing and somebody's frustrated, like how do you deal with that without just getting upset and wanting to go sit out. So I'd say that is the biggest hurdle is um, when it comes to engagement and um, building that culture is building also those social emotional skills to deal with failure um, when it comes and deal with competitiveness. Um, so, yeah. So I, I started coaching esports uh, this this semester, um, which has been honestly awesome. We're the largest esports organization in Ohio. <laughs> Um, at this like little tiny small school, but part of our curriculum that they hand down to us from this league is calorie counting, food choice, exercise, step counting, like all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really intense. Like it's about health and wellness, not about competitiveness or sports. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that whole idea of food choice and calories and steps and fitness is an interesting one because that is a trend in physical education. And I, in a lot of ways, I see it as like a harmful trend because we see this obesity epidemic within the United States, especially within children, and our solution for it has been fitness and calorie counting and in a lot of ways trying to push down adult ideals on how to be healthy, um, and it doesn't work. So this shift to moderate to vigorous physical activity, which is 
what the Society of Health and Physical Education promotes, a 50% MVPA per class. Most of the research doesn't support that as an intervention for obesity within children. And it really comes from, I think, a lot of the adult ideals. Like you look around with, you know, if adults want to lose weight, what do they do? Like they go run on a treadmill or they go outside and they start counting their calories and then they want to try and calories in versus calories out. And so we've started to try to impose that on children rather than just saying, okay, we're going to live a healthy life by making really good food choices. And we're going to live a healthy life by finding a joy in being physically active, whatever that means for you. Um, because most people, they don't like you look at gym dropout rates within adults and it's pretty high. Um, go in January and then go back in June and, and see the difference of a gym. So, yeah, I think that's one of the interesting trends in physical education. Huh. Now you got my, my mind racing. I got to reconfigure our own program because I don't, I don't know any better. <laughs> uh, so let me, let me ask the expert. Right? If you have students then that are a little older, let's say you're like a high school physical education teacher and you have students that are struggling with their weight and want to lose it. What advice would you then tell those educators to provide to their students to help them kind of realize their goals of losing weight? Yeah, so that that's a great question. And that's something I get like goosebumps talking about because I'm super passionate about. We've tied food and physical activity together because they're related. But a lot of times what we do is we're like, we use one as a punishment for the other or one as a reward for the other. Like, oh, I just ran six miles. Like, I'm going to go reward myself with a cheeseburger. Or I just ate a cheeseburger, so I'm going to go punish myself with running six miles because I need to burn that off. And in a lot of ways, it creates this push and pull of an unhealthy relationship with physical activity and food rather than saying, like, I'm going to make good choices. And if I decide to indulge on a cheeseburger once every so often, like, I'm not going to go and punish myself with physical activity. Like, I'm going to be physically active because I enjoy it. And so that doesn't really like, that's not like a prescription of like, this is what a program should look like, but it's like, how do we inspire this um, passion and joy, just like any other subject. If you think about reading, like we can either say you need to learn how to read and you need to learn these topics. So we're going to read X number of books every single week, or like, how do we inspire a love and joy of reading so that they want to keep reading into the future? I think that's the difference in mindset of, um, is I guess what I'm trying to explain. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, no. I, I think that makes perfect sense. Is the the same as that concept of if you give extrinsic rewards for reading, you're going to have a lot of kids that really like pizza, uh, as in because they always get pizza rewards for reading X number of books. And over time, you just start taking shortcuts uh, because it's easier to seek out that reward instead of focus on um, the thing that it is that you're doing. I'm I'm kind of like gears are turning here trying to figure out what that would look like in a program outside of, I guess, just exposing students to a lot of different types of activities that they could do and then hoping that one sticks outside of the school day. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's a, that's a part of this program and a key element is this exposure to a variety of activities. So there's a trend in the long-term athletic development um, kind of discipline of this approach is uh, multi-sport sampling. And so I've kind of re-termed it to multi-activity sampling within our movement class. And my hope is that every trimester kind of grade level bands. So like K1 and then 2-4 is how I'm separating it right now, but eventually it'll just be two grade level bands are experiencing different activities every trimester. So not next week, but the week after we're launching uh, a skateboarding, um, sampling of activity. And like, you'd want to talk about engaging kids that normally wouldn't be engaged. We did a skateboarding club in the fall as kind of, so I partnered with a organization, a school, a high school, which I think fits really well with the human restoration projects mission one stone. So we, I partnered with their project, which is like how they started was through this philanthropic arm of their organization of doing good in the community. And we've partnered with them and the project is inspiring a joy of movement and we're doing it through skateboarding. So we're using the design thinking process to um, launch this project. And we 
um, kind of started the iteration through a skateboarding club. And it's funny because I was recruiting students into the skateboarding club and I had this waiting list that was like triple what I could um, support. But um, the students who are in it, like one is like your, your gamer, like he doesn't ever do anything physically active. And half the time he was like laying on his stomach on the skateboard riding around, but like he was out being active, enjoying um, being with friends, which was really cool. Um, and then we had a lot of our students like who are your, you know, special education students who were like, man, like you, you're, you have a lot of these challenging behavior students in this club. Like, do you think you'll be all right? And I was like, oh, they'll be fine. And they're just so engaged in what they're doing. Never had any um, issues. But anyways, so we're launching this um, skateboard sampling in the fall we did, or in the winter, we did some snowshoeing with third and fourth grade. We went up to Bogus Basin. Um, we did golf with uh, everybody in the fall as well. Younger kids, um, I'm working on jujitsu and parkour. Um, so sampling trimesterly activities to expose them to a variety of things is, is kind of a key component to this movement program. Long story short. What is your thought process on another trend that at least I've seen in physical education, which is a movement towards entirely individualized phys ed. So kind of nixing the gym, like as in the like MBA style gym, like the old school gym in lieu of the adult gym, like having like exercise equipment, uh, Pilates, you know, like all the different things that you could do. And then you just kind of log what you did. Like there isn't really an emphasis on any team sport whatsoever. Yeah. I, I would say I would be fully against like putting, you know, a bunch of machines in a gym and saying log your minutes on a treadmill. I think that's kind of the opposite of what I would promote, but I think at the high school level specifically, there is, uh, a huge benefit to like a project-based learning approach to physical education where students are designing their experience in physical education, because that's what our goal is, is to set those students up for success once they leave high school and being physically active. Now, what that looks like, I, I, you know, the, this whole American movement to, and really world movement of structured physical activity to again, burn calories, I think is not, what I would point kids to, um, but you know, designing a, a experience where they're learning a specific skill that they would want to pursue. Like, you know, I I chose two years ago uh, to start learning how to river surf on our standing wave here in Boise, something I had never done. Um, so I started researching it and you know, understanding the equipment. And I think that's where you can then integrate some of the other subjects in a project-based learning approach, like the skateboarding project is going to be integrated within our computer science, which is really like a design class where they're going to design a cardboard skate park and do stop motion video to teach the skills that they're learning in movement. So then integrating, um, you know, some of these other disciplines, but yeah, I think that individualized approach in older grades is, is something that's intriguing. High school, I taught that one year in San Antonio, um, ninth grade, but that was a while ago, and, and my mindset has shifted a lot since then. So high school is definitely not my expertise, but it is an interesting concept for sure. I like the idea, too, of multimodal learning, phys ed through different forms of literature that maybe don't kids don't normally associate with phys ed. So like one I can think off the top of my head, I teach photography, um, and we do a lot of photography outings where we walk downtown or, or walking downtown or even like walking through like the, the park and getting into like the hiking side of things. That's, I mean, it's grueling. That's like a five to 10 mile endeavor. Get like some of like the free solo videography, you know, like that specialize in rock climbing video. I mean, there's a lot of ways to integrate movement into everything. And that's really my, my end goal and vision for what this program could be is like, we're doing these projects in the classroom that integrate movement in some sort of way, rather than it being this like standalone class. Um, but going back to your question about like the design of the gym right, right now at our school, we're actually partnered with the boys and girls club in garden city. So it is a very traditional looking gym, but if I could do it, I'd probably have like an open space. That's, you know, some sort of rubber flooring, as half the gym and then the other half of the gym, you'd see like a parkour uh, type gym where you could do all kinds of different stuff of jumping and balancing and 
Um, kids love that. All kids love that regardless of ability level. There's something that they can. I imagine like buy. first graders doing like Assassin's Creed, uh, like jumping off the buildings and stuff. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, so Peter, what resources would you want people to go to? What would you want to share with them? What would kind of be your, your final statement? Um, well, I'm in the process of just launching a resource, a kind of a curriculum and some resources to go with it. It's Movement Engineering Project, uh, movementengineeringproject.com. And on there, I have like suggested resources, which are some things that have really heavily influenced me. And so that's a great place to look. But um, Again, long-term athletic development, youth physical development models are some things that have really influenced me. Um, the constraints-led approach and ecological dynamics, something we, haven't, we didn't really talk about today, is another thing that really has influenced me with regards to skill development and how to teach skill to kids and to do it in a really engaging way. Um, digging into risky play. Uh, Mariana Bersoni is is somebody who does a lot of research on that. There's the Real Play Coalition. Uh, MoveNet is an organization that talks about natural movement. Really great resource. Um, all those things are linked on that Movement Engineering Project uh, website. So, and I hope to be launching some stuff this summer. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast so far. If you are interested in diving deeper into progressive education or you want to just support the Human Restoration Project in some way, I encourage you to visit humanrestorationproject.org to learn more about our Patreon, which is the way that you can support us, as well as see all of our fantastic resources, materials, and other podcasts to share. Now, back to our discussion. Next up is Bruce Mansfield, an instructional coach and former U.S. history teacher in the Bellingham School District. I spent 14 years as a classroom teacher and I spent the last two and a half years, well, I'm in my third year now as an instructional coach at an alternative high school and a comprehensive high school. So I'm split between two buildings this year for the first time in my career. Basically, the whole prompt for you becoming an instructional coach was based around kind of like this move towards a, like almost a progressive style uh, system for assessment? You know, people said that um, if you leave the classroom, it gives you a, a really unique opportunity to think about, think back on your own practice and get a new perspective. And I, something I didn't quite understand until I started working with teachers who were interested in shifting their own assessment and grading practices, that grading in many ways for high school classroom, at least, is a linchpin. And I could see that as I was pushing on grading practices with folks, they were telling me, well, I have to change my conception of tasks and, and how we how we run the classroom and how we engage with each other and how students interact with me and with, the, with their peers. And I think really grading is, um, I, my colleagues kind of make fun of me uh, here because they say, oh, we're still talking about grading anytime with anybody and I, and I will. And I think it's because it's, it's, such a, it's such a perfect avenue for getting into other aspects of instruction that are, I, I, I don't know, I, I love the whole, I love the whole process. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, if you change how assessment works, it, you have to change the rest of your classroom, which I'm sure is something that comes up um, as an instructional coach. You can't just say, oh, we're just not going to give any traditional letter grades anymore than expect the whole classroom to uh, flourish. Um, there's going to be many other changes that need to take place in order to ensure that intrinsic motivation actually drives the classroom. And I want to talk about how you have your portfolio system set up, because I, I myself use a portfolio system, and a few of my colleagues do as well but they all kind of differ from each other based off the teacher's preference. What kind of portfolio system um, are you utilizing? I, I call it from grades to growth. And it initially started as an opportunity or really an interest of mine to make class as authentic and meaningful as possible and to get away from the game of school uh, at really at any cost. And I had been, I think, thinking about, I, actually, I know I've been, I went back and I was looking at some of my my teacher college materials from 20 years ago. And I could see that even when I started teaching, I wanted a classroom where I had students first, student voices and interests and passions were, uh, were, were elevated and were a core part of the classroom. And I think I struggled a long time. I think the why of, of shifting in the portfolio was there early. It took me a long time to figure out the how and the what. And I, I tried different elements of standards-based grading. I had a very, um, how I, I uh, um, can I say, 
I try to emphasize revision and mistake making and students sort of selecting the best examples of their work. And it really culminated in this ungrading practice. So for me, what it, what it eventually evolved into, and this was probably a, a, was a three year process of just jumping into replacing numbers and um, like points on assignments for more meaningful feedback for students. And what I ended up having coming up with was a, a category system where I'd have categories of growth goals. Students would be collecting evidence of their growth in those categories. And then four times a month at each quarter where I was doing midterm and then semester grade reports, we would, uh, students that I would we, we'd meet for, uh, for a set amount of time and we would go over their portfolio. And we really would have a pretty frank discussion about where their growth was and what goals they would have for, for the upcoming term. Um, and then that culminated a letter that students wrote to me where they talked about their growth in detail, made specific reference to their, their assignments. And uh, that ended up culminating in a grade. And we would just negotiate on, on a letter grade, uh, the students and I, and that's what I would put on the grade book. Yeah, I mean, I think that system works. Did you find that when you initially transferred over to standards-based grading, because I did the same exact thing, that it just kind of like was a another way of saying the exact same thing? Um, I don't know if your standards-based grading initiatives were similar to ours, but we still used numbers to associate with standards-based grading, like as in like you're a four and the standard. Do you feel like the transition to being completely gradeless is necessary in order to get the goals that you're looking for in the classroom, the goal being extrinsic motivation? Oh, absolutely. And the I think my experience bears this out in, in working with teachers and the research I've done. I think the, the best way, I think David William might have said this first, but the best way to stop students from learning is to assign points to them. And, and, and sometimes with my coaching, I remind teachers, like there are moments when we're doing some of assessments, like we need a final on this particular date, we need to accurately assess student performance and achievement. And it's not a learning situation in that case, but you know, uh, for myself and in my coaching, I, I try to push that off as long as possible. And that anytime we've got kids in front of us and we have time to work together, it should be in a more of a formative learning process. And so I, 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 when I, I jumped right in and just got rid of all the grades mid-year when I, when I started doing this. And uh, what led me to it was looking over my grade reports for, I was in winter break, so I had two weeks to kind of think about and reflect on the, the year so far. And I thought I would see uh, my, our, our, online, our um, online recording system is called Skyward, which is our grade book. So was, they had some features where you could look at students' progress over time and come up as a graph. And so I pulled up some students and I thought I will see this upward, upward trend because I thought I had a system that was, would be reflecting student growth and uh, improvement in ability over time. And I was kind of shocked to see that student after student after student had flat lines. Their grade just settled in on a percentage and it, and it stayed there for, for months on end. And so I went to my students and I had, well, had this idea over winter break that something that I, I don't know where it came from, but it sort of, it planted itself as a seed in my brain of why don't we just get rid of the points? We'll, we'll keep everything else the same. We'll just, we'll just get rid of the points. And I went to my students and I said, you know, we're going to, we're going to be ending the semester in about three weeks. And what would you think about not having points for next semester? And they were a little hesitant. Um, their, their first question was, what would you instead? I said, well, we're going to, we're still going to do the same assignments. We're going to have conversations and, seminars and we'll, we'll, we'll work together, we'll, we'll, we'll keep learning. We just, we'll, we'll talk about your growth and your learning using, uh, using a, a, a language that's a little more meaningful than seven points, eight points, 27 points. And that, it took a while for them to get used to it. I think it took about eight weeks for them to retrain themselves because they, I was really asking them not to play the game of school anymore. And a lot of students had a lot of invested in that, that game. And I think that's a huge part of it, too, that I think sometimes gets lost um, in the conversation, which is the equity side of things, which is, you know, grades are really just a ranking and filing system. And all teachers know that it's very rare for a student who's not doing very well academically to all of a sudden start doing very well academically as a result of achieving a low grade. And there's a lot of research that supports that concept. And, and did you find that when you transitioned uh, and kind of like, I, I like calling it deprogramming. Um, you deprogrammed your students from uh, this language of grades. Did you see them doing better across their assignments? Like, were they submitting more or doing more? Oh, that was the most surprising aspect of it. I, I think I had bought into some 
shibboleth of education that uh, upon really close reflection and, and, and looking more deeply into this to have any basis. So I, I hear this from colleagues a lot when they hear about what I'm doing and they say, well, um, students won't do work unless you, unless you grade them, unless you give them points. And I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to believe that was true. I think I it kind of was inculcated in the traditional system when I started teaching. But it found that actually students did more. Uh, they, they did more work. They did harder work. They did more. They, they were willing to alter or even give themselves assignments. And I think part of this was shifting for me and being really clear about what my focus was, was on student growth. That was it. We wanted to focus on student growth more than anything. And so for students who traditionally struggle in a classroom, I was kind of flipping the narrative and where I was, we were moving from a system where let's record how good you are to let's record how you're getting better over time. And let's take that uh, the, the progress or achievement assessment and let's make that simply a marker for where did you start in September and where are you getting in October, November. And we tried to, I tried to use a two week gap. This seemed to be a good amount of time for students to, uh, to, to assess their, their, their ability. So for kids to struggle, it, it was really great because I was able to say like this uh, on the grade level text that you struggle with in, in August or September at the beginning of the year, uh, like that's okay. It's, it, well, I wanna see your mistakes. I wanna see where you're not fitting expectations because that's gonna be our base level. Then we'll look at your work in two, four, six, eight week increments out. And if we see improvement, it's that growth that we're gonna measure. So I use standards-based methodology as a way to assess where students were in, in, uh, over time. But what we, when, I, when I was measuring and reporting out to stakeholders, like what ended up in the grade system was the measure of that growth. And I think that opened up a door for a lot of kids. There's no reason to like fail a student who's trying, especially since that's going to have so many negative consequences on them in the future. And let's kind of get into the nitty gritty of how exactly this is being implemented and certain strategies that you might use. So let's talk about um, the student letter component because I, I find that kind of unique. Um, what is the student letter? How is it set up? What are students doing? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, I initially set it up so I would have something to share with parents and with, with folks that were outside the classroom. And I was pretty nervous jumping into this and I didn't know uh, how it would be received. Um, I was kind of surprised that with, even within a few months of, of, of going gradeless, um, I didn't really receive any negative feedback at all. Um, an initial trepidation from students that faded as they got to know the system. But from parents, I was getting emails every couple of weeks that would say things like, thank you so much for giving my kid breathing space. They're really excited to be in control of their learning. I wish I had a class like this. Um, I did hear through the grapevine after the fact in some cases that parents, because I wasn't putting a lot of uh, points online, were kind of unsure about how things were going. Um, so I replaced that with a weekly letter home, just a quick email to all my parents kind of explaining, here's what we did in class, here's some of the, the and I really wanted to focus on, let's, let's support students' growth around thinking. So it wasn't, here are the assignments, here's one of the due dates, it's here are the, here are the topics we covered this, this week, here's some interesting questions you can talk with your kids about, here's where you can press a little bit on some of the thinking skills that we're developing or some of the content areas. And I think trying to shift that conversation a bit and at the same time I was doing this, I was also a parent of a high school. I have a, 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 my stepson is 19 and he graduated last year. So I was able to kind of see a little bit of the shift from elementary, very connected as a parent. We knew just what was going on in all his classes. Middle school, we had a bit of information. It dropped off as he got into eighth grade. High school, we had no idea. High school teachers were not communicating with us. So wanted to kind of you know, cross that, that, that gap. And then I wasn't sure about admin. I wasn't sure about district admin. And um, after the fact, found out very supportive. I did talk to my principal before I jumped in and said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not asking permission, but I'm going to tell So I'm going to go. Here's my research. Here's my reasoning. Here's what I'm going to support. Here's how I'm going to be uh, meeting the expectations that, that he had for me as a, as a teacher. And, and was, I felt pretty supportive. So that's kind of where I started with the letter. What I, what I found out as I started getting into them is, oh, my God, kids were so expressive and were so... Uh, just so mature and responsible and engaged with the process of their own learning and development that the letters blew me away. And I got a number of letters from students who would not be able to verbalize to me in person, even when we would do our, our end of term 20, 30 minute conference and we would sit out in the hallway and it would be kind of private so kids could talk with me. Um, sometimes they have a hard time, right, with adults talking 
saying what they're really thinking. So I would get letters that would be very, I uh, like they were just, I think so honest and, and open in, in ways that 15, 16, 17 year olds uh, are, you know, thinking and feeling. And it was, uh, I, I treasure the letters. I kept everyone uh, over the last when I, well, three years that I did this work. And um, when I talk to, to teachers now, they're like, oh, we'd like to do conferring. We'd like to do, and I'm not sure about the letter piece. And I really say, you should jump into the letter piece. It is, it is really, uh, it's, it's just mind boggling what kids are capable of that we often miss if we just, just talk to them in face to face. Yeah, I think that's a, a really solid point. I think that uh, too often students' voices are marginalized um, in the classroom. Like we really need uh, curriculum uh, people, instructional coaches, et cetera, really pushing for the fact that students are a lot more intelligent and mature than many give them credit for. Um, and placing learning in the hands of students has usually like way better results than anything that you might plan um, because students tend to uh, come up with some really cool ideas on their own. Did you find that when you switched to gradeless learning that there was less pressure on you? Like as in, did you find that your job was easier? To kind of give some backstory for that, like I know when I switched to gradeless learning, I found myself doing most of the quote unquote assessment at school. Like I used to take home like all this stuff and like have to go through like all the numbers and it was just a lot of pressure because you have to get those done at a certain point or else like someone complains and they want to know what their grade is. Um, whereas when you switch to gradeless learning, a lot of those conversations have to happen face to face. So even though there's certainly a lot of discussions that need to happen at school, um, that work isn't coming home. It shifted it dramatically. And, and again, I, so I find it, it's a struggle as a coach to try to convince my colleagues that it, you actually can, you can work less, you can work more effectively, you can increase student learning, and you could do it all with less stress. It seems like it's too good to be true. And what I think what it was, was really being clear with myself and my students that shift the, the goal and the purpose of the activities that we do. Whereas as a, as a younger teacher, and I was I taught a, in a fairly traditional system, it's assignments for points and homework, and we're going to average and sum and, and come up with a score at the end. But the purpose of giving a, a kid a task was to get the points out of it and to record. Really what I was recording was compliance uh, effectively uh, from students. And what I went gradeless really shifted into, I saw myself as not a um, content expert where I'm, I'm transmitting information in kids' heads or like I'm you know, focusing on management where I'm here to control students or so I, I really shifted it into, I think my, my job as a teacher was to better understand the thinking of the students in my classroom. And the best way to do that is to have them do a lots of different kinds of tasks, some written, some out loud, some small groups, some individuals, some whole group, lots of, lots of different opportunities for kids to make their thinking visible. And that my job was to take in that information and then to give appropriate feedback for students so that they could move forward and make the next appropriate steps. And, and doing that on paper is really, really difficult. And the, the, the traditional taking assignments in, taking them home, marking them up, sending them back, was, it's, it's an inefficient process. And it's, I think it's very difficult to get kids the kind of prompts, just the right time feedback to move them forward. So even before I started doing a grading completely, I'd already shifted my grading process or my feedback process so that I would only interact with students when they're right in front of me. I didn't really collect a lot of work. Um, I eventually did and I had a turner box, but students had to demonstrate hey, what kind of feedback are you looking for? Show me that you've tried a couple different avenues. First, you've gone to peers, you've gone to your, your, your classroom resources, that there's some reason why at this moment I needed to get involved. Um, why can't we do this face to face? You know, I had to kind of put some barriers in front of kids explicitly so that they wouldn't just throw me work and say, you know, here's something that put in the grade book. It was, why do I need to look at this right now? You know, to explain to me what it is that you need. And that was part of a lar larger conversation in the classroom of shifting toward the purpose of classes for students to make evidence of growth. And we don't know, you know, looking forward to what that best evidence might be. So let's just make a bunch of stuff. We're going to collect everything we make. We'll go through a sorting, sifting, organizing process later, and we'll look back and we'll see the emerging story of your growth, but right now just go do stuff. And because I shifted away from, well, you have to do the assignment because otherwise you're going to have a zero and that zero is going to impact your homework category. It's, you need to do this assignment because it helps me get a better insight into your thinking right now. And we need something for this week because you're going to do something different next week and we can't track growth unless we've got evidence scattered over time which by the way, when I tell teachers about, oh, do you have a due date? I said, I'll take work from kids 
at any form at any time. Like, I don't have due dates. Well, how do you keep kids from turning in a whole pile of stuff at the end of the, end of the term? Well, if a kid does that, I would say, this is amazing evidence for the last week that you did work. I was missing evidence for the previous 17 weeks when you weren't doing the work. So <laughs> that's great. That's, that's one, week's of, uh, one week's worth of evidence, and that would help uh, take care of that. Um, but I almost never had to have that conversation because kids got it pretty quickly that really anything they did. And, and I even had situations where students would say, I don't really, this assignment just isn't clicking or I, I don't get what's going on. Um, and I would say, well, look, if, if, if this, this text this week isn't, isn't a really good opportunity for you to show evidence of growth, then we'll do it again next week. Like I didn't, I didn't lose any sleep over individual students not doing individual assignments. Um, and there, there was a trend of students not doing work. We had a conversation, but it wasn't framed around, hey, you're not doing stuff. I'm going to have to give you zeros. It's, it's really hard for me to see where you need help if I can't see work that you're doing. And uh, it was amazing how many kids stepped up and kind of got that piece of it. I know that a lot of teachers seem to be of the mindset that you should be kind of unfriendly or strict towards students in order to get them to do things. And it seems like it's actually the exact opposite, like as in if students trust you and feel like you're on their your side and, and even like adopting policies like this, when you start talking about like, here's why grades don't work, here's why like we're doing it this way, it has this revolutionary tone to it that I think a lot of students buy into because they know it too. Um, and it kind of brings them into the fold with you so they trust you and they actually um, feel like they want to contribute in your class just because that's you're on their side. You've been kind of alluding to it here. How is the portfolio system literally set up? So like, are they turning in like one thing per week, one thing per month? Like, how does that, how does that work? All right. So uh, first of all, start big structure is I would, I created categories of growth and I, we needed to come up with, a, a, I needed to come up with a language for students and me to talk about growth over time. And I, and one of the things that I really liked about the grade list system, you'd asked earlier, is it less work? And I think overall it is because I'm doing less of the things that drive teachers crazy, taking work home and, marking up the text and I mean, just talk to English teachers, right? They spend an hour on this in an essay and they give it back and the student looks at the score and tosses the rest of it, right? It's just wasted effort. So I wasn't doing that, but what I needed to do was I couldn't just say, well, this is five points. I had to be really clear, like, why are we doing this assignment? <laughs> How does it connect into the larger goals and what are those goals? And so it really forced me to really plan the whole year uh, backwards in a sense of, I didn't know where I was going and how all the pieces fit together. So the categories helped us think about how students were demonstrating growth in, in, in specific skills. So for my general ed classes, these became reading, writing, patterns of history as a social studies teacher, and historical thinking skills. And then reading was really explicitly reading informational text in the social sciences and then writing in a social sciences format. So those are kind of my four categories. For, for my advanced placement classes, because I taught AP classes in the system also, I used the AP College Board categories uh, that, were, that were aligned for preparation for, for the exam. So it was a little bit slightly different, but the idea was that you're, you're collecting evidence of growth in particular categories. And this is where the system, I think the flexibility of an ungraded system really, really uh, helped me and helped my students because for, say, uh, uh, the reading category, well, for each category, I should back up, each category had a format that we, we used all year and that format didn't change. So for reading, I just said, here's five types of thinking that social science readers do. And it was essentially annotation strategy. So things like we look for main ideas, we make connections to text and things outside the text. We ask questions, we identify areas that we don't know. I can't remember off the top of my head what the fifth one was, but it was a pretty, pretty standard annotation structure. This went up on an anchor chart, went up on the wall, it stayed there all year. So every time I give kids a text, it was, how do we use this text and our annotation format to demonstrate improving ability to read over time? So the first text was probably a paragraph or two. It was at or just below grade level. I assigned the kids and said, we're, gonna, we're, we're all going to do one of the annotation strategies. The second text, I might have assigned them two. I probably did a read aloud or a, a modeled annotation in front of them. And then as we went along, was able to differentiate with students where if I knew that they were able to do, say, main idea pretty well, then I would say, okay, I'm going to, everyone's going to do main idea. You pick the second one of the five, make your own key, and go in and practice with it. So I was able to, to over time, increase the rigor of that particular assignment. And I did the same thing for the other elements. So for writing, I had a seven-part structure that uh, seven 
elements of writing that are st all started with the letter C, so we called it the seven C's. It was you know, things like uh, commentary and concrete details, kind of like um, uh, what Lucy Culkin's kind of base writing uh, structure. Patterns of history, I use historical, it was essentially about collecting historical evidence. So we would talk about people and events and places and objects and uh, maybe, maybe uh, uh, sorry, basically who, what, when, or why is what the structure was. So just collecting historical data. And then for historical thinking skills, I just used thinking maps. So we did a lot of analysis, a lot of comparison, a lot of change over time, a lot of cause and effect, a lot of sequence analysis were kind of the big ones that we did. So those all had structures, all had, those all had formats. So I would give an assignment. I have a, a formalized assignment every week. And it would include, it would kind of be centered on one or more of those categories. And I had a consistent assignment sheet that would go on top of the assignment. I used a single column rubric where I clearly defined what a meeting standard was, but left the below and above standard open for students to negotiate with me. And then would have the materials and all the, all the everything ready to go. But because we, we structured everything around these four categories and the category structure was, was consistent all year, I didn't have to say, like, here's how I want you to do this writing assignment. It was, you do a piece of writing. So the, the first couple were, I'm going to write a paragraph, and I'm going to give you the prompt. I'm even going to give you some options for the thesis. And then collectively, we're going to find concrete detail of a text we read. And your job is to put the commentary and to write the closure. And that might be it's very structured early, early in the year. By the end of the year, I was able to say things like, here's the prompt. Here are five texts. You need to collect evidence of reading and writing from these. Go. And kids would have to negotiate through. And they would know because at that point, it would be eight months of conversation about how they're going to collect and make evidence. So we had those. And that's what I would record in our grade book was a, just a, a marker of, uh, again, I used a, a four-point scale. It sounds like pretty similar to what you were doing. Uh, so those formalized assignments, are you, are you getting those done to the point where you have evidence so that when we get to the portfolio piece at the end of the term, that you'll have things to talk about and put together. So it was a bit of a dance where with, with kids, like you need to get stuff done and I know where this is going and you may not be able to see that. So just trust me that you need to do these assignments and we're collecting evidence if you're, if you're, uh, if you're doing them or not, we'll have you know, individualized conversations about how we can help you get more done. But the, the real weight and the meat of the conversation was gonna happen well, we did the portfolio collection and the letter writing, which happened four times a year. The systemic shifts that we can place into our classrooms are probably the most interesting ones as opposed to just like these like little workshops or like one thing that we do one random day that takes a lot of planning. Uh, when you plan it all up front and you just change how a whole system works, it really does radicalize um, how the classroom functions and operates. Um, and it's really cool to hear that the system works no matter kind of what context you're in. Like you said, you use it in an AP class, which I mean, AP history is like probably one of the most content heavy classes you can potentially teach. And if it works there, it pretty much can work anywhere. You're an instructional coach and you mentioned that you, you know, you bring up the portfolio system within that um, context. Do you find any hesitation or like a lot of pushback from teachers as opposed to students it's one thing to say to students hey you know you're in the system we're going to counteract it you know what it's like versus a teacher who may have been using grades and been a huge proponent of grades for you know years that now you're saying oh no you should actually do it this way or here's a different idea how do you go about convincing them uh what kind of feedback do you get yeah it's been a a, a lot of learning as a coach and trying to shift from being with uh, with the classroom of students right now i know i have them for nine months and that's all. And I have to make some pretty quick moves to shift the system. And, and you know, working with adolescents, they'll pretty much do what I'll tell them to do, because uh, there's a lot of, I mean, just being the adult in the room, I've got a lot of implicit power that I don't necessarily have when I'm working with adults. And I, I had to learn that the, actually, I was kind of wondering when I first started coaching, is like, how similar is this to working with students? And the good news for me, at least, it's almost entirely the same. The, the two big differences are it's, all adult learning is, is opt-in. So if teachers say, I'm not going to do something, I, I don't have any power to, to make them do something. I'm not their administrator, I'm not their evaluator, so I can't, like you have to. Uh, so that's been interesting. And then having a long-term multi-year time frame as opposed to a nine-month nine time frame has really shifted things for me also. So I think my first semester coaching, it was a lot of 
I felt like I could walk in, give teachers my system, and that would be it. And it took me a while to realize that like, that's not where they are. It took me 13 years of practice to get to the point where I was ready to shift my own practice uh, on, my, on my own and to give teachers a little bit of grace and leeway. So part of that is kind of shifting my own expectations about what where teachers are really ready and willing to go. And then realizing that grading is probably the most personal part of, for high school teachers, is kind of, that's, that's where I work, that's my experience. I think I found that for high school teachers, decisions they make about how they grade students are so wrapped up into their philosophy of education, the reasons for doing school, for becoming a teacher, for participating in the system, and I have had some experiences of teachers just essentially saying, I'm not going to do that because that's not what school is for. Uh, we're, we're here to see which kids are able to do biology, not necessarily to grow every kid. And there's been some philosophical debates about that. And I say, okay, here's a, I have an alternative perspective. Love to talk with you. Doors always open. Again, I'm not, I can't, you know, I'm not a program administrator, so I can't make that shift um, just by fiat. But I, what I have also found too is, is that a lot of, these practices that the benefits seem almost too good to be true and that I've had some interesting experiences where teachers are willing to shift the practice just a little bit and they're kind of amazed at how much better students are responding to say a, a, a more open-ended assignment structure where teachers are, are taking points away from the center they're still there but it's not the reason why students should be doing assignments anymore and they're finding that their, their, their kids are much more willing to try things and to and to be flexible and to take risks and to do all the stuff that we know is necessary for growth. And that once they take that first taste, they ask for a little bit more and then I can kind of kind of lay it out um, and go through. But like, like any instructional situation, it's relationships first, getting to teachers to know me. Uh, I think I'm lucky I'm teaching in, a, in, a, uh, in the same district. So I've, I've spent 14 years as a classroom teacher. So a lot of folks knew me as a teacher first and not as an outsider jumping in. Um, but it's it's been it's been hard to find teachers. I don't know. It's almost like giving them permission to try something new, even when they know it, it may not work the first time. And you know, and teachers are so overloaded that ha having them uh, be willing to take on something that it is extra work and it's extra thinking when they're so overloaded has also been a challenge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I find that at least in my context that a lot of those conversations go better when it's framed as a way to lessen teacher workloads, um, which is why I, I mentioned that. Cause I, I mean, to me, when you make your classroom more radically student centered, you yourself have to work less because students are taking on more of the workload in a sense, but it's like a, a positive workload, not just like a stack of papers. It's like something that they're actually interested in and actually care about. It's not, it's not a silver bullet. There's certainly a lot of other things that have to change as well, but it's something that can work in multiple contexts that doesn't require as much of a radical shift as some other initiatives like purely self-directed education or, or something like of that nature. So it's cool to hear that it's working and that it's supported by your school district because in many school districts, that's still a very outlandish concept. Yeah, I think maybe just the big thing is the, it, it is quite a big shift and it's interesting to talk about the district response. And sometimes I don't think the district really gets what, what, we're, what I'm doing here because in some ways I'm kind of flipping the traditional norm of education upside down. And, uh, in my in my classroom, it's you know we had these, and I think students probably came up with them, and then we just kind of adopted them. But these kind of slogans for like how do you describe what's going on? And and this, earlier we talked about how students are a little bit hesitant. And I remember my, my very first year doing this, I had about six really high level students come to me after school. They're very polite and essentially said, we are very we're good students. We have our A. We, we don't like that you're rocking the boat. It makes us super nervous. Um, and I essentially said, me too. Uh, I think it's worth it. Give me six weeks. If you still don't like non-graded after six weeks, I'll go back and I'll give grades for you. Like I, I understand like, grades don't mean anything to me, but I know that as a you know, future college student, they're extremely important. So I don't want to wreck that for these, for these kids. So we did our bit. They came back after six weeks and they said, uh, we want to keep the ungraded system. We don't think you can ever go back to giving grades. We think it's that important and we'd like to come back and talk to next year's class at the beginning of the year and tell them how things function because they're going to freak out and we want to let them know it's going to be okay and that kind of amazed me that students were willing to take that that level of buy-in but i think you have to be in that system and really see it work and see how 
the, the, the shift really goes from me as the center to the kids at the center. And we talk a lot about like student centered should be where we are, but I don't think we're really thinking as a system about how we make that work and how we actually make kids the center, which means letting kids make choices, even when those decisions are not the best decisions and letting them sit with the consequences of that, not in a punitive way, but in a, I learned from my mistakes and I'm gonna share what I learned from others and I'm gonna move forward. I'm not gonna, you know, we're not gonna collect your best and worst moments and average them together. We're gonna to tell a different kind of story. And so in the classroom, it, it allowed me to push on kids in ways that I, I didn't really see when I started it. So getting rid of points means we don't have points to risk. So I can give them things that are really hard to do, things I know they're not gonna do successfully the first time. I can go to my kids and say, this is basically an impossible task and you've got 15 minutes and let's see what you come up with. Only thing we've got to gain is, is, is learning about ourselves as learners. And, and they were hesitant at first, but once they saw that, they jumped right in. Visitors would come in and they'd be like, oh my God, your kids are running the classroom. And I'd like, yes, that took 12 weeks of effort to training to get them to that point. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, but I find it was completely worth it. And I would, and I plan to go back to the classroom eventually and I'm pretty excited to, to experience that again. Thank you again for listening to Things Fall Apart from the Human Restoration Project. I hope that this conversation leaves you inspired and ready to push the progressive envelope of education. You can learn more about progressive education, support our cause, and stay tuned to this podcast and other updates on our website at humanrestorationproject.org.